Viewing Jesus rightly is incredibly important to our lives. Uh, somebody famous said that, that the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And, and I think there's some real truth to that. Uh, and as an extension of that, God in human form, Jesus, I think what you think about when you think about Jesus is, is incredibly important uh, to who you are and how you live your life. And what's fascinating is that the Palm Sunday story, as I mentioned a couple of times already, is a story that gets told in the wrong way. And I've basically preached on Palm Sunday the same-ish sermon, you know, for the last eight or nine years. I went back and listened a couple years ago and thought, wow, I am totally unoriginal. And, and, and I think that I do that because the story keeps being exactly the same every Palm Sunday. And it's not the story that we necessarily gravitate towards. Now, I say this every Palm Sunday too, so you'll have to forgive me if you've been around, but what I remember about Palm Sunday as a kid is that we at my church, Seeker Sensitive Church, their declaration, not mine, Seeker Sensitive Church, I remember this, hitting palm, or, uh, beach balls around. Uh, that's like my big Palm Sunday memory. We would get the beach balls out and people would be hitting them around and I loved it. Like it was cool as a kid, it was really cool. But it demonstrates something about how we maybe miss the point of Palm Sunday because we celebrate Palm Sunday and we think about how all of these people in these, this crowd, this crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, how they were all celebrating him and excited about him. But it totally takes this story out of context to see it as only a celebration. It, it gets celebrated and, and all of the drama around Palm Sunday gets completely forgotten. Like, let me just tell you this. There were people there that wanted to kill Jesus. Like they were making a plan to kill Jesus. We don't talk about that when we're hitting the beach balls around, you know? I mean, beach ball, people that want to kill Jesus. Like that's, that's not how we tell the story. Or how about this one? Maybe the most depressing Palm Sunday sermon I ever preached. I, I taught on Luke 19 and, and it's what happens right after Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he gets there, there's the throngs, all the people, they're chanting, they're excited, and then Jesus gets into Jerusalem, and we see this scene where he just prays over Jerusalem while he cries a little bit. Like, oh, that's different than the beach ball Palm Sunday that I grew up with. I mean, Jesus finishes Palm Sunday by crying as he looks out over the city. Uh, or, the, you know, the big truth that, that hopefully we all know, and that is just a few days later, this, you know, a lot of the same crowd is going to be chanting, not Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but instead crucify him, and, and Jesus is going to be crucified. And so clearly, there is a weird thing going on, on this, at this Palm Sunday story that isn't all beach balls and, you know, just waving a palm branches, which is a part of it. I mean, there is something else going on here and really at the heart of this story what I say almost every year is that the people some of the people are are understanding Jesus in some correct ways like some of the people understand Jesus a little bit correctly but everybody there everybody including the disciples they're all misunderstanding Jesus in really big ways 
If one of the most important things about you is how you view Jesus, well, this crowd is, is really getting it wrong. And so today on Palm Sunday, what we're going to do, a little bit different than how I normally preach two weeks in a row now, but I actually want to look at three passages of Scripture. Uh, the first is going to be in the book of John, the Palm Sunday story, uh, as we kind of know it. And the other two are in the book of Revelation, where we see some parallels to the Palm Sunday story. Because this is what's so cool, and this is going to be different than what I've done the last seven or eight years. So jokes on all of you if you thought I was going to preach exactly the same thing. But here's what's so cool about it. The book of Revelation and the scenes that we're going to look at, they parallel the Palm Sunday story. But it's so clear that they view Jesus, that the people in it view Jesus fully and rightly. And it contrasts, there's parallels, but it contrasts with this Palm Sunday story and what the crowds got wrong. And so let's look at John 12, 12 through 16 first. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now notice this. This is what I preached on last year. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So look at this. Here's this story, this Palm Sunday story. And at the end of it, there's this odd note that I preached about last year that, that the disciples, his close friends and followers, the guys who hung out with him all the time, they didn't understand what was going on. I mean, I could see him out there like just following along. Whoa, this is cool, you know, but and then get into the end and be like, what was that about? You know, like this didn't make sense. But it's only after the rest of the Holy Week story that the disciples start to understand what's going on. D.A. Carson says, the full significance of this parabolic action and the scripture on which it is based, neither the disciples nor the crowd grasped until after Jesus had been glorified and the Holy Spirit poured out. Gerald Borchert says, the glorification of Jesus would enable the disciples to recall the event in its proper perspective. But at this point, they could still not integrate the Old Testament text with what they were witnessing, their view of Jesus the Messiah and Jesus' life and teachings. They're looking at this event and it just doesn't quite make sense. And let me tell you why. Because they just didn't quite understand fully who Jesus was and therefore what Jesus came to do. Zechariah 9, 9 through 11, that's where this comes from. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Do you see kind of the mix-up in Zechariah 9 that maybe they missed? This is a story that, that proclaims that the Messiah will come and he will make things right and he will, you know, shatter the bow and he'll have some military might, but, but it misses the clues like that he's going to come lowly and riding on a donkey. 
And so the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, while Jesus walked the earth, they saw just parts of that text and they were excited about it. Someone is coming who will overthrow the Romans. That's what they were looking forward to. Will overthrow the Romans and will bring us the peace and the prosperity that we long for. But they missed the parts about blood and lonely and even peace. You know, they missed some of these things. They didn't view Jesus rightly. Leon Morris says, the crowd thought of him as king in the wrong sense. After the glorification, the disciples thought of him as king in the right sense. And so the Palm Sunday story, in and of itself, even though they missed it, it encapsulates two incredible realities about Jesus. He is the righteous, victorious king. And at the same time, he is the humble, sacrificing servant. In the book of John, he is everything that the first half of the book describes and also everything that the second half of the book describes, which is him suffering and dying for our sins. Last year, I said it in a single word. I said that Jesus is Savior. And in a lot of ways, they missed that on the first Palm Sunday. Okay, so you got that in your mind. There it is. You see these glimmers of it, right? These glimmers that Jesus is more than they thought he was going to be. But then when you open the book of Revelation, and you know this if you've been around, you see these heavenly glimpses of how Jesus is viewed. Or you see a more full uh, descriptions of how Jesus is who Jesus is, what Jesus is about. And so I want to look at a couple of those because two of them, one of them would have been our text for today. That's planned, you know, thumbs up to me. Uh, that's planned. And the other one I already preached on as we moved our way through the book of Revelation. And that's the first one I want to read to you. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. So first the parallels. Uh, the first is that there's a great multitude praising Jesus, right? We had the crowds at the first Palm Sunday, and then here we have a great multitude of people praising Jesus. Now, unlike the crowd at the Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, uh, this one is full of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language, and it represents Christians everywhere, not just the masses of mainly Jewish people. And so there's differences, but there's a parallel there. The more obvious parallel, the most obvious parallel is what are they waving? They're waving or holding palm branches, right? They're waving palm branches at Jesus. Now here's the thing. This is really fascinating to me. And I talked about this when I preached on Revelation 7. There is only two times in the New Testament where it talks about palm leaves or palm branches. One is in the Palm Sunday story in the book of John, 
and the other is here in Revelation 7, which is also written by John. That's fascinating to me. Now, when I preached on Revelation 7 a few months back, I talked about how this is most likely, uh, Revelation 7, a reference to Sukkot, which I've already alluded to in our service today, the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths, uh, a holiday that we celebrate in the fall, a holiday that Jesus used in order to point people to some very important realities about himself. So I taught it that way before, but now I'm, I'm on the fence. I've moved to the fence here because I just think it's too fascinating that the only time we read of palm branches are in these two stories by these author, the same author. And it makes it even more staggering that if you read the Palm Sunday story in the other Gospels, it doesn't mention the palm branches. It's not there. But here, John, the author of both these books, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He puts the palm branches in in both stories, and it makes me wonder if we're meant to see a connection to Palm Sunday. But either way, there's a clear parallel. And then the other parallel, perhaps the most important parallel, is the cry of salvation. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but, um, but Hosanna means save us, or as time went on and the word began to take on a life of its own, and you know, as it moved through the, the decades and the centuries, it became a phrase for salvation has come. So it moved from being a, a cry for salvation to being a word that meant salvation has come, a, a praise because of salvation, if you will. And it was, uh, it's a word that, that, by the way, when we read Psalm 118 in the NIV version, they actually just translated for us. It, it said, salvation uh, has come, Lord save us, Lord grant us success. You saw that there. So they just translated it for us. But Hosanna is a word that refers to salvation. And now in our heavenly scene, we see the people cry out, salvation. And so we see this parallel. But there's a major difference, right? Because in the Palm Sunday story, there's this weird mixture. And people are looking for a king who will make things right on earth. But now in this heavenly scene in Revelation 7, these people have realized the fullness of the salvation that Jesus came to offer. It, it isn't just wishful thinking, but instead it, it's a, a glorious worship. Right, like the, the crowd in, in first century Jerusalem that welcomed Jesus in, they're waving their palm branches and there's some wishful thinking going on. They're like, Hosanna, and, and it's probably both those things, like maybe this is our moment for salvation, but, but we really want salvation to come and now this heavenly crowd is just recognizing or feeling or experiencing and declaring that salvation has come to them. And the response is not just to quote an Old Testament psalm, but instead it's this incredible scene of worship. They worship Jesus because they know what he has done for them. You know, I, I, I saw people talking about this the other day, but, but praise can be worship, Right, like we can, that's part of worship. We do it every Sunday. We praise God through song and hopefully in other ways. We say good things about God. And, and so praise can be worship, but you can praise somebody without worshiping them. I could tell you, good job. There's praise in that, right? And that first century crowd, they clearly praised. They clearly praised Jesus. But the heavenly crowd, they worship Jesus because they more fully understand, in fact, they fully understand 
who Jesus is and what he really came to do. The people recognize, notice it, notice, and this is the tension of Palm Sunday. This is what they miss in a lot of ways. This heavenly crowd recognizes as they worship Jesus as king and lamb. The first century crowd was like, here comes a king, the right kind of king. We'll see that in another passage in a second, but here comes a king. But the heavenly crowd says, here is a king and a lamb. Here's the one who rules and reigns over all, but also the one who suffered and died for all. The two, as hopefully you know, if you've been around and worked your way through the book of Revelation with me, the two are not incongruent. They go hand in hand in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the sovereign Lord and the slain lamb. Now it's interesting to me because um, I think that, that, that today we would get it kind of backwards if we were laying down our branches and coats i think we would be like hosanna hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord blessed is the lamb we have a tendency in in modern day america to i think maybe emphasize the lamb side of jesus over and above the king side of jesus i think we love talking we love talking about how jesus died for our sins, how Jesus saves us, how Jesus gives us a future in heaven if we come to believe in him. But by our very nature as Americans in some ways, we don't like to think about the authority that he possesses and that we should be, we need to be obedient to him and follow him and be willing to lay down our lives in service to him. And in this heavenly scene, they don't, they don't put one over and above the other. Jesus is lamb and Jesus is king. There's one more passage that I want to look at. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And here we see that Jesus is not just like an earthly king. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. And the description that we'll see, we'll see parallels to the Palm Sunday story again, but the description that we see of Jesus reminds us of the ultimate authority and power and sovereignty of this Jesus, the same Jesus who walked in lowly riding on a donkey and suffered and died. And now this description and revelation is going to point to his ultimate authority and power. And I think it's important for us to remember if we're going to view Jesus correctly. Listen to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a, is a, sharp, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what are the parallels? Well, one, he's declared king, right? That's an emphatic declaration in this passage. That's something that the first century crowd did. They declare him king. And then the perhaps more obvious one is that he rides in on an animal. But notice that he doesn't ride in on a lowly donkey. 
He rides in on a white horse. Why? Because this passage of Scripture is reminding us that Jesus is King. And He's not just the suffering servant. He is also the King of kings and Lord of lords. In the, in the first trip into Jerusalem, the one on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus is showing people, yeah, I'm king, but I'm also the humble servant. I mean, it's a clear declaration of his humility that he isn't there to start a military takeover. I mean, if he was gonna do that, what, he would have come in on a white horse. He would have come in on a horse. That's what the Roman leaders, generals, kings did. They showed up on a big old mighty horse with a procession ahead of them, and they said, look, I'm here to whoop your butts. And Jesus is like to his disciples, go get me a donkey. I'll ride in on that. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm here to be the suffering servant. He's making that clear on the first Palm Sunday. But when we read about his coming in the book of Revelation, he's saying, hey, I am also the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he comes in on a white horse to show that he will have his victory, that he is authoritative, that he has all the power and all the authority, and that he rules and reigns above everybody who thinks they rule and reign on this earth. The donkey symbolized that he was there to suffer, but this white horse is there to show that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Now, why is this important? For a lot of reasons, because we want to view Jesus rightly, but but we're working our way through the book of Revelation. And if you've been around, I've said this a hundred times. If you haven't been around, I'm going to say it to you for the first time. The goal of the book of Revelation is to encourage us to keep serving God when it's hard. Remember the backdrop for this book. The people, the Christians, they're facing two things or they will face in no, no time at all. They'll face two really hard things. One is internal rejections of the truth. Christians who are rejecting the truths of the gospel. And they're also facing, or they will in just a short time, immense persecution from the outside. Like persecution where, where people will be killed if they refuse to worship the emperor. In fact, some people will just be killed because they're Christians. Just because they're Christians. And so the book of Revelation sits there to say, in all times, for all people throughout history, it sits there to say, hey, even when it's really hard, like really, really, really hard to live for Jesus, keep doing it anyway because it's worth it. And so we need that white horse, right? We need to remember that Jesus is in control. When we face the struggles that will come with being a Christian, when the world rejects what we know is true, completely when they begin to mock it when they begin to hurt people because of it and and god forbid in our country but maybe someday but around the world when they kill people for it we need to know that jesus doesn't just sit on a donkey he also rides a white horse he is king of kings and lord of lords and he will be victorious but there's more I mean, listen to the description. His eyes like blazing fire. He has many crowns on his head, which by the way is, is meant to stand in direct opposition to the dragon and the beast, which are wearing crowns on their head and horns. 
Uh, and by the way, the mini crowns show his unlimited sovereignty. Like he is king of kings. He's got mini crowns, right? Like not just one. He's just wearing them all. He's got it all. Uh, it tells us that an army full of heavenly people are following him and they too are on white horses, which stands probably for their purity. Jesus makes us pure and for their victory. I think it's interesting to point out here that, and I may say this again as we move forward, that you never see this army actually fight. Um, it's not like, you know, people are coming out of heaven and fighting. Jesus takes care of all of that. But they are wearing fine linen, which by the way is in direct contrast to Rome who has fallen in the book of Revelation that was dressed in fine linen, adorned beautifully. But now who is it? It's the people that Rome has destroyed, the Christians who are in the fine linen. And this passage tells us that Jesus has a, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, which, would, which he will use to strike down the nation's. He will rule with an iron scepter, which is for his rulership and maybe his shepherding of his people. The scepter was something that was used to shepherd people. So it shows in some ways both sides of Jesus that he shepherds those who are his own, but that he will have a heavy fist with those who are not. And then it tells us he will trample on the winepress of God's wrath. Those who oppose God and persecute his people will be smashed. And so here is this image of Jesus on the white horse with all of this crazy stuff, this descriptions that harkens back in some ways to Revelation 1 where the book started, where Jesus described in very similar terms. The Jewish people looked for a Messiah that was a warrior that would be like this and now John is declaring, this is your Messiah, O Israel. He is the suffering servant but also he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And if you didn't pick up on it, that's how it's described at the end of the passage. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. Deuteronomy ten seventeen says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. If we're going to view Jesus rightly, it is important that we remember that he is king of kings and lord of lords and and he is the jesus who rode in on a lowly donkey to suffer and die for our sins when you think about jesus you should picture him both on a donkey and a horse if you will you should recognize his willingness to offer us grace his willingness to be arrested to be mocked to be hurt, to be whipped and scourged, to have a crown of thorns put into his head and then to be nailed to a cross all because people were sinful and he wanted to save them. And you should also recognize that even though he did all that, he still is and always will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords who rules and reigns over all and will put an end to those who oppose God and persecute his people. Notice in the middle, and this is this is the thing, and I've said this before, that surprised me about the, rook, the book of Revelation as I've moved through it, and I love it. Everywhere we read about the wrath of God, there are reminders that we don't have to suffer it. Here, how does it happen? We see that his robe is dipped in blood. There he is on the white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and eyes that blaze like fire. But on that robe, is the blood, the blood 
that can save you from all of the wrath of God. The blood that he shed on the cross for the sins of you and me and every person on the planet. The blood is what can save us from the wrath of God and it's never very far away in the book of Revelation. We are always reminded that if we will believe that Jesus came to suffer and die for our sins, that we will be saved from all of the scary things that we read about in the book of Revelation. And why? Why? One, because the book of Revelation is so clearly calling you, if you're not a Christian, to become one. Become a Christian. Follow the King of kings and Lord of lords who suffered and died for your sins. Follow him. Become his followers so that you might be saved. But also these reminders are there for you and I who are Christians. The book of Revelation is not meant to scare us. It's meant to encourage us and to call us to worship. And so every time we read about these scary things that God is going to do to those who oppose him and oppress his people, every time there are reminders that we've been saved from it all. We don't have to fear. We just get to worship because of what he's done in our lives. Robert Mount says, by now the reader will be accustomed to sudden and dramatic changes as vision after a vision appears to John. The blessedness of the wedding supper of the Lamb is abruptly followed by a vision of the warrior Messiah who appears on a white horse ready to wage war. You see, the book of Revelation is, is oscillating. It's oscillating between Jesus on the donkey and Jesus on the white horse. Not because it's saying one thing is true and then the other thing is true, because it's showing us that both things are always true. The book of Revelation is going back and forth in order to teach people that they shouldn't be like the Palm Sunday crowd. We should always recognize Jesus as the suffering servant, and we should always recognize Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We should always remember that Jesus came to die for our sins, but we should also always remember that Jesus is the one who rules and reigns. He is the name above every other name. And so today, as I do every Palm Sunday, I want to challenge you to think about Jesus in the right way. I bet that if we went around this room, you know how you do personality tests? And, and on personality tests, they'll say, They'll say, hey, if you're more on this side, put a one. And if you're more on this side, put a five. You know, what, you know how you, you, we do that right there? And I think that if I went around this room and we said, hey, when you think about Jesus, do you picture him on a donkey or do you picture him on a white horse? That, that most of us would, would be probably too far, you know, just forgetting about one side. And we should be all five on all of them, if that makes any sense. I know I'm mixing up this metaphor. But we should be a five. We should say, yeah, absolutely, 100% he's the suffering servant. And absolutely 100% he's king of kings and lord of lords. But we can drift from that and we can be like the Palm Sunday crowd and we can go, and this is so common. This I grew up and you know, the American church was really all about this like when I was a kid and I think to the detriment of the church long term, but it would be like, Jesus died for your sins. It doesn't matter how you live your life. Like, I mean, that, like, so just, you know, you just sin, you get forgiven again. You sin, you get forgiven again. It's like the American church for about 20 years forgot about Jesus being king and I think we have some of the remnants of that. Yes, Jesus died for my sins, but also Jesus is to be obeyed because he's king of kings and lord of lords. 
I should bow down before him both spiritually speaking and sometimes physically. If you're able, you should be bowing down. You should be on your face before the King of kings and Lord of lords because he rules and he reigns over all. But on the other side of that, I know people, there's so many people that look at Jesus as just this king and, and they forget that he's the one who is gracious and merciful and they look at Jesus, this exists, this repeats too many people that look at him and they're like, that's just this guy that I need to obey and I need to make sure that I'm doing all the things he's asked me to do and they have no real relationship with Jesus because all they see him is, is like this guy on the throne and they forget that he stepped off of it. He came down here and he rode on a donkey and for we we who are Christians, we need, we need to always remember that both are true. Jesus is the gracious, suffering servant who died as the lamb. And he is the king and kings, king of kings and lord of lords that you should follow with your life. And I believe, I believe when we, when we see him in both those ways and we hold both those truths up, we will live lives of worship like we see in this passage. And so for you today, if you're not a Christian, become one. Man, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he stepped down from heaven. He came to this earth. He lived perfectly, sinlessly. And then at the end of that perfect, sinless life, he died on a cross for you. He never stopped being King of kings and Lord of lords, but he died on a cross for you. And so accept his gift of salvation so you don't have to suffer his wrath. But for those of us that are Christians, ask yourself, am I forgetting about one side of Jesus? And if you are, make a decision today to picture Jesus a little more on that donkey or a little more on that white horse and to uphold both of those things as true always in your life. Let me pray that you will. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would view you rightly. I think that God, um, the reality is that if we don't, remember that you are both the rider of the donkey and the horse, then God, we will be, we'll be as fickle as that first century crowd. When things are hard, we will flee. If we only think about you dying on a cross, then we'll stop living for you when it's hard. We'll just say, oh, God will be gracious to me, and that is, you will be gracious, but God, that's not how we ought to view you. And if we only view you as king, and we forget about your grace, then we'll eventually see you as this, this unkind ruler that's disconnected from us. And that's not true either. And people f- will drift from serving you because they don't remember your love. But when, God, we remember your incredible love, grace, and mercy, and also your incredible power and sovereignty, that's when I believe that our lives become lives of worship. And I pray that that would be true for every person in front of me today. God, for those who aren't Christians, I pray that they would come even now to accept your gospel as true. Lord, maybe they've always thought of you as a person that just ruled and reigned but didn't love them enough to step out of heaven, to step off your throne. I pray that today they would come to, to, to accept that as true. And maybe they always saw you as just this, this weak, suffering servant but never really thought about how you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And so they never respected you enough to give their lives to you. I pray that, that God, you change that today too that they would come to believe your gospel, Lord. And for those of us who are Christians, help us to always view you rightly. And God, help us to communicate to people about you in the correct way. Help us to uphold both truths when we talk to people about you, that you are the suffering servant and you are 
the slain lamb, but you also are king of kings and lord of lords. Let us teach people that. Let us be a church that, <laughs> that shows people both of those things, Lord. God, let us show that in our words, obviously, but also in the way that we treat you. Let us love you and, and connect to you and, and remember that you are personal and have a relationship with you and talk to you and interact with you and you know, think of you as father. And Lord, let us respect you greatly and recognize that all glory belongs to you, Lord. I ask these things, Jesus, um, in your name. I believe that they can be done, that you can say yes because you are king of kings and lord of lords and I believe that you listen to me in the first place because you are, you are, Lord, the suffering servant who loves me and wants a relationship with me and I thank you that both of those things are true and I pray these things in your name because of them, amen.